Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. My name is Dean Jones, and this is Season 8, Episode 15 of the podcast. Today I'm very honored to have on my program Andreas Weistad, who is a food writer, TV chef. I'm sure you've seen him on NPR's um, television show, New Scandinavian Cooking, and he is a restaurateur. Uh, he's a food activist and... Um, you know, he's a journalist. He, he wears so many hats and he's just an amazing person. I'm very so much honored to have him on this podcast today. Um, he also um, is the founder of the Gitmira Culinary Center for Children in Norway, and he addresses the issue of um, um, f- food knowledge for kids and having them, you know, learn about food and understand where food comes from and how it's prepared and more. He's the author of Kitchen of Light, um, and where flavor was born, and he has a new book out. Um, it's some um, food writing book, Dinner in Rome, which talks about food and where it comes from in history, and how it came to be uh, now on our plate. Um, I really enjoy getting a chance to talk to Andreas. He was a wonderful guest and is full of so much information and insight. And I really think you're going to love this uh, episode. So, without further ado, I'm going to take you right to my conversation with Andreas Weistad about his book, Dinner in Rome, that is out now. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I am speaking with Andreas Weistad, who is a food writer, TV chef, restaurateur, journalist, and food activist. He is the longtime host of the new Scandinavian cooking airing on PBS in the United States and in over 50 countries. A former columnist for the Washington Post and a founder of Yetmaira Culinary Center for Children in Norway. He is the author of Kitchen of Light and Where's Flavor was born and has a new book out on the date of this airing, Dinner in Rome. Andreas, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what was your aha moment when you realized you wanted to become a chef? Well, the funny thing in a way is that I never became a chef. I worked with food uh, my entire adult life, but I started out studying history at the university. And in a way, uh, that got me through the rabbit hole of curiosity. And I've always been super interested in uh, food. But uh, in a way, I've, I've, I've skidded along uh, and not, you know, I've uh, looked at food through uh, storytelling, through the you know, the history of food has always been incredibly important to me. But in a way, uh, with this book, A Dinner in Rome, I've gone full circle, all the things I care and love about. I, I have this deep interest in where we come from and history. But I want to see that in connection to one of the things that really makes life meaningful, namely namely food. And uh, I've tried to to combine those things by writing about this meal in Rome and how that can be a window uh, back into history. Your TV show and your videos really kind of bring out and highlight your love of Norwegian food and cooking. And I, I really like wa- loved watching them um, to kind of get an idea of you when I wanted to do the interview. And I was really intrigued just because you use such wonderful flavors and I really got very interested in the food. Some people say that you kind of put Norwegian food on the map. How do you feel about that assertion? 
Well, I, I think that that's a, a great compliment. And I think, you know, um, to, to me, um, the, 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 the show, uh, New Scandinavian Cooking, was born out of living in the United States because I'd always come from this little place in the outskirts of the world. And I'd looked at the rest of the world with curiosity and hunger and, you know, thinking everything else is exotic. And then living in Boston for a couple of years, um, I started reflecting on my own heritage. And I thought, you know, there are a few things that we have, you know, many things that we don't have, but there are a few things that we have that are, are incredibly exotic and some of them are really unique and I wanted to tell that story because I thought you know uh, that was the first question that my friends would ask me you know what's the food like where where you come from and uh, I wanted to give an, a kind of elaborate answer to that question and and the answer became a television series that has been running for more than 15 years. Yes. You know, you had um, an episode, you, you had like a segment that I really loved. It was the Norwegian taco. And to me, it really, it was fun because it really highlighted not only just the food, but also the flavors that you use in your cooking. I really was intrigued by this and I, and I wanted to see more because normally when I've heard of Norwegian cookie cooking, I always hear about, uh, of course, lutefisk. And that's basically all you ever hear about. But um, you know, you've done a lot of other things and you've kind of added a lot and brought more out to the public. What were some you of the know, things? You know, Lutefisk is, is, I think, one of the things that we, we, we have done it once, but I mean, that was just in passing. Otherwise, yeah. we've done everything else. We wanted to show the different, a really different uh, image of, of, uh, of Norwegian cooking. And I think that you mentioned the Norwegian taco. The funny story is that, uh, you know, we, um, in... Norway, as in so many other countries, we eat a version of something that we call taco, but it's not really something that, you know, a, a Mexican wouldn't necessarily recognize it as a taco. And I feel that that is, in a way, um, some sort of culinary poverty by emulating another uh, culture's cuisine without really knowing what it is. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting when I found that there is a tradition of eating a, you know, um, a flatbread kind of semi-soft, semi-hard flatbread filled with uh, minced meat and uh, vegetables and spices, and 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 that that is a traditional food in a particular part of Norway, and no one really knows. Uh, and I think that you know most cultures do have a version of a flatbread filled with some food. And I think that that is much more fun uh, if we can say, okay, I really love. Mexican taco, but I also really love uh, the idea that we can create something based on our own cultures. Now, I've been reading that you spend a lot of time fighting culinary illiteracy. We've had a lot of guests in the program that are very passionate about this. Can you talk about to me about your passion for this topic? Well, I think that, you know, when we talk about food, we often talk about restaurants and, you know, um, you know, you and I, we, you know, we meet and we, we, we plan for a great dinner and we meet on Saturday, let them <laughs> watch the television and, and, and enjoy some fast food. Uh, whereas I think that, you know, the, the food culture is not the, the food that you, we eat when we celebrate. Uh, it's the food we eat every day. And I think that we've come to a, 
a, a, a sort of stage in our civilization where we take food for granted. We don't know where food comes from. And then, uh, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of knowledge do kids have growing up if they grow up without knowing how to cook, without knowing where food comes from? And I've been incredibly inspired by Alice Waters and her project, The Edible Schoolyard. And uh, 12 years ago, I came across an old dilapidated farm in the middle of my home uh, city, Oslo, uh, that's called Jaikmira. And uh, I applied to, to rent it from the municipality and I started a nonprofit, a culinary center for children where we do educational programs. And it has grown. So we're now in four cities and we're opening in the fifth city, hopefully next year. And we've even had Alice Waters coming to visit. So that is uh, a fantastic thing. So she considers us among her, her, her children in a way. That's wonderful. She's done so much great things here and we really, really love her. She's a very beloved local. Mm. And, and one of the things that, you know, sometimes it's easy to complain about all the things that are bad, you know. Right. Our food culture is threatened it is a problem that there is a, a, um, some sort of level of culinary illiteracy going on in in society but one of the things that we do see every day is that when we when we let kids experience the joy of cooking it leads to deep appreciation of one of the finest things in life but also building knowledge in a great way so kids that may struggle a bit with mathematics but who are really good at cooking they start doing numbers you know when you're doing a recipe and stuff like that so it is a type of practical knowledge that that in this digital world we we do not you know we don't have that many examples of this i'd like to talk about your tv show how did you come to have a tv show and what did you want to bring to the table when you started thinking about how you were going to do the tv show well as i mentioned uh, i was living in boston and um I was I started working on uh, a book because I thought it would be fun to do a book from from Norway about Scandinavian cooking and presenting it in a different way than you know some people might know have some sort of rudimentary uh, knowledge of uh, of of one aspect of Scandinavian food if if they've grown up in 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 the Midwest but apart from that uh, Scandinavian cooking was totally <clears throat> unknown. And I thought it would be fun to do a book. And then while I was writing on the book proposal, I thought it would be fun to do a television show. And uh, me and a friend uh, approached um, uh, American public television and uh, and there was strong interest. And within you know six months, we, we were in production. And it's only a bit later I found out that that's not how it's supposed to be done. You know, it's supposed to be a long and, and tedious road to uh, to nothingness, but uh, for us it was super easy. We just had a good suggestion and we went in in with it, and uh, and everyone cheered us uh, along, and it, it became a long, long running show. Food and cooking had been around on TV for quite some time, um, and I I grew up watching so many great TV shows, largely through PBS, which was normally one of the only venues we could watch cooking shows on, and then now. You know, as you've seen, food is everywhere on TV. Uh, Netflix, Hulu all have food. Home and Garden, all these different channels all have food all over that. 
what do you attribute to the explosion that we've had in the interest of food in different contexts? Do you think it was the pandemic or there's, is there another reason? Well, I do think also the interest in food has many layers. And I think, think that, you know, uh, to me, food is um, a, a cultural expression. So those, and it's a practical and, 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 and physical thing. And I think that for me, uh, uh, writing about, you know, since, since my last book, book is about food and history, I mean, if we write about food and history without writing about the, the taste aspect of it, um, then I think, you know, you're not doing it justice. But I also think that this sort of abundance of single recipes and how to make double chocolate chip uh, cookies it's not really an expression of uh, an interest in food. I think it's an expression of something else, uh, uh, like a cultural restlessness that is, has come over of, uh, us all. We want something. We want it now. We want it to be fast. We want it to be flashy. And uh, whether I've been, you know, doing the television show or cookbooks or this last book, Dinner in Rome, which is a, a food history, it's really a history and travel book. Um, but I want all of these aspects that I want you to be able to taste it. I want you to be able to understand it. I want you to be able to put it in context with, you know, in the, in the case dinner in Rome, I want you to feel that you're sitting at this restaurant table in Rome, but I also want you to reflect on where do we come from as, uh, as like a, a Western culture that has been born out of the Roman empire, but also who are we as humans? We are, we are this sort of this strange animal that is not an animal that ha has built a, um, not only an interest around food, but a culture very much based on food. Um, and I think, I think we need to separate. I, I, I feel sometimes I feel quite lonely in a way, having these sort of in, this insistence that we should see food in a context because it's very often become almost like you know, almost like a pornography like thing where you're supposed to just watch it and get a kick out of these sort of snippets of uh, uh, of food related thing but it doesn't tell us anything about who we are as a collective as as a as a society as a history and I, I think that it, it has its role but I think that that, that role has become multiplied into too much. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Now, since we're talking about dinner in Rome, I want to go over this book a little bit because I really enjoyed reading it and I was really surprised at some of the different um, the different um, places that you took us in the book. I think a lot of people might think it's just about food and it is largely about food of course but it like has a lot of different um, parts to it that I found really interesting like you talk about the origins of the mafia, how the popularity of sugar led to the slave trade, you highlight topics of the importance of salt and where pasta originated. Do you want to talk about the book a bit and, and some of the um, 
some of the places you're taking the reader and what, what surprised you in the research? What was kind of the um, wow moments you had doing research for the book? Uh, let, let, let us just sort of put it in context for those who don't know the book. The book is called Dinner in Rome, and it is a book that it has, you know, the, the main narrative of it is just me walking a couple of hundred steps to my favorite restaurant, uh, La Carbonara in Capo di Fiore in the middle of Rome, and sitting down and enjoying a meal, a really good meal, but not a spectacular meal, um, a very traditional Italian meal. I, I just love it. Um, but the reason I wanted, and, and through that meal, I want to tell the story of the origin of some of the ingredients, some of the dishes that I eat, but also to tell how food has shaped history. I think that, you know, very often we think that um, history is is the result of the intervention of, uh, you know, generals or kings or whatever. Um, but in, you know, uh, the Roman Empire wasn't built by Caesar. It was built by this unique food system that that uh, the uh, Roman Empire had managed to, to create. And it's the same with so many of the other things that we take for granted, the, the salt, the pepper, the you know, all of these ha ha has this fantastic story. And I think the origin of the book was uh, really my visits to Rome with my wife, who's an archaeologist. And, you know, archaeologists, they have this fantastic ability to, to look at a piece of marble or, um, or a piece of stone, the ruin of a building long since gone, and then they will, they will build that building up again and say, you know, this is how the building was. This is what the people inside would do or believe. And I love archaeology. But then also at the end of a long day in Rome, you typically sit down and finally uh, you are free from this history lesson uh, uh, that the eternal city is. And you just sit down and you, you relax and you enjoy some really good food and good wine. But my claim, in a way, in the book was to say that you can read just as much out of the food that we eat than, than looking at, uh, you know, marble buildings. And so I, I claim that there's more history in a, in a bowl of pasta than there is in the, in the Colosseum. And, uh, and that's really my method, uh, going through flavors and meals and, and and show them how uh they help shape the world you know when when you sit down for dinner tonight you, you're probably going to grind some pepper over your steak or your piece of chicken or, or whatever and um and you won't give it more thought but the fact that pepper uh, was one of the most sought after commodities in the world profoundly changed the world you know, it, it led to the age of exploration. Without pepper, uh, Columbus wouldn't have ventured west. You know, he had this grand idea that I'll find a lot of pepper on the other side of that great ocean. Of course, he didn't find it, but it, it did help uh, change history. And I think that that is really fascinating. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it really makes the experience of, of the food we eat, both the extraordinary food and the ordinary food, really much more interesting.
Did your um, love of doing research about food in this in this vein start when you wrote your book, Where Flavor Was Born? In this book, you explored culinary wonders along the legendary spice route from Zandazabar to India to Bali. Was that where you started kind of doing what you called your culinary archaeology? Yeah, uh, I think that was the first big project. I'd always been really interested in combining food and history in 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 my columns and cookbooks. I've I've uh, written multiple cookbooks in in my old own tribal language in Norway as well, and and written extensively for newspapers. Um, but uh, with the where flavor was born, I wanted to present almost like a theory um, on the origin of flavors whereas you know the indian ocean is a vast ocean that spans from from the southern tip of africa all along the eastern coast of africa and then the arabian peninsula uh if if you look at it sort of generously it also includes uh, countries like iran and then down to the indian uh subcontinent and and uh, thailand and uh, indonesia and and all the islands in between and my 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 claim was that even though these cultures are so different uh, the food is almost like dialects of the same language because they share the same spices and this millennia old uh, spice uh, route so yes and i i elaborate a bit on that also in uh, in where uh, uh, in uh, dinner in rome where I, I, I write about um, particularly, uh, particularly uh, pepper and how the myth, uh, myths surrounding the spices were so important in ancient societies. It was these sort of uh, postcards from an unknown world. You had these maps that you know ended in sort of white areas where where you had monsters or were, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you didn't know what was on the other side, but you know there was something because you had these tangible examples of it. Um, pepper and cinnamon and uh, allspice and all of these wonderful things. And imagine being a person living in, in, in the Roman Empire um, in, you know, 2000 years ago. You would know quite a lot about your local community. If you lived in one of the bigger cities, you might know uh, something about the Roman Empire and it's, you know, how, how big it, how vast it was basically. And then if you were part of the sort of educated elite, you might know a lot about the Roman Empire, but you would still know almost nothing about the world beyond. But you would you would be able to appreciate it and you would hear these fantastic stories about where the spices came from uh, and and it helped trigger the curiosity of uh, of humanity and it made the world bigger and i think food still makes the world bigger because if you travel to a foreign country um you might not really get to know the people who live there um I remember I was in Thailand and it is a really fascinating country, but you don't really get to know the Thai people um, if you're there for a week or two, but you do get a profound feeling of 
closeness to their unique culture through the food you eat. And it's the same basically with, with every place in the world. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because I get so I hear when people talk about other cultures, they always mention food and they usually get it wrong. Like I've heard so many times people, you say Scotland and people say, oh, haggis. And I'm like, well, actually haggis isn't so bad. And they eat other things than haggis, you know, and we, a lot of people don't know anything about Scandinavian food. They don't really know what to think of. They might think of Gravelox or something, but they don't really know. And in your first book, Kitchen of Light, you really took Scandinavian dishes and made them contemporary and you kind of brought them to the forefront so people can have an idea of what people in Scandinavian countries eat. What was your intent when you created the book and what did you want to kind of show people who are reading it? I wanted to, um, to try and just create a different narrative than, uh, than this narrative that came out of people who uh, who, who grew up in the in the Midwest and had these strange dishes that you know the lutefisk you mentioned. Uh, not everyone knows it, but it's a very peculiar kind of um, it's dried fish that is reconstituted in an uh, in a, an alkaline solution. So it has this sort of jelly like uh, texture, and it's not really a particularly common food in Norway. You know, some people will eat it as more like a tradition thing. Uh, so I wanted to just look at um, Scandinavia as if I was an unprejudiced person uh, discovering it and discovering some of the same qualities of it as uh, with French or Italian food, uh, but not trying to be French or Italian. Um, because I mean, there are, uh, you know, the the ducks are fatter in France. The olive oil is, <laughs> we don't have it, but we do have other things. And, you know, the fact that uh, Norway is far north um, has some limitations, but it also leads to a fantastic emphasis on seafood, uh, on root vegetables. And the use of root vegetables, I think, can be super, super interesting. And and game and, and also one thing that, you know, Ameri Americans don't eat much lamb. I, I, I think the lamb is really, really interesting. Uh, and, and just introduce a few things that are quite common uh, in Scandinavia, but are quite unknown other, you know, in, in the United States, but also some, some things in our pantry is very similar to what you have perhaps in the in the in the northeast and also in the pacific northwest but you just use them differently so yeah. so many of these uh, ingredients are, are readily available i wanted to ask you about your restaurant uh saint lars um in oslo um, this restaurant is internationally known and you feature the food of norway highlighting the local produce and meats what was in your mind when you wanted to conceptualize this restaurant it, it, well, it's not a, a, a Scandinavian restaurant per se. It's more like um, it's more like a bistro that has traveled from Paris to New York and then back to Oslo in a way. So it it oh. it, it, it has these sort of. Um, uh, but uh, we wanted to create, um, I I I started the restaurant with a, a couple of friends, and we wanted to create. Um, excellent food that was uh, really ambitious but un 
you know not snobbish um so we've got um we've got a huge uh charcoal grill that we use to uh make most of the food and um and it's all in homage of uh, saint lars who's saint lawrence or san lorenzo and he was martyred uh, in the third century in, in rome actually uh, uh by being uh, martyred on a griddle and his oh. famous uh, last words to to his, ex his executioners were i'm done turn me and have a bite so he's consequently and i'm i'm not kidding he is the official patron saint of rotisserie chefs and comedians and we thought that was a pretty good <laughs> starting point that. so uh, the funny thing is, actually, we started the restaurant 12 years ago, and and in connection with the book Dinner in Rome, I actually went to visit uh, his shrine in uh, in uh, in Rome, just outside of Rome, one of the churches just on the periphery of the city, uh, in his name, uh, San Lorenzo, Basilica San Lorenzo Fiori, uh, Fiori in Muri. Uh, outside of the um, of, of the city walls, um, and uh, and uh, I uh, I there I want to put it in connection to one of the sort of big stories of our our uh, our human existence, namely that fire uh, helped uh, transform us basically from apes to humans. Yeah. Um, that. Um, Sometimes you hear you've heard the story of how humans were so clever that we were the only ones to master fire, but most probably it was the other way around that there was a clever ape that started to use fire and therefore to was able to cook food and therefore was able to to uh, get much more uh, energy from the food and much better food security and and it sort of changed our our intestines the way we digested we could use a lot less energy on digesting food and chewing food uh, and uh, and then uh, it, it, this helped develop this unique brain that we have uh, that is the foundation of everything so that's actually one of the last parts of of, of the book um tying in with with saint lars feeling that you know i thought it was as I, you know, I thought it was pretty fun to have a, a restaurant named after a guy who was martyred on on a griddle and yeah. <laughs> a, a little bit, you know, a little bit badass kind of thing. And uh, and now uh, writing dinner in Rome, I I really felt that it was not not a not a clever and badass kind of thing. I I thought it was a profound thing that you know this is where we come from. We are the we are the we are the cooking ape. We are gathered around the fire and preparing food. And this is what makes us human. This is what has made us human. Sort of our, our cognitive abilities come from this. But also this is what has made us a human. Our joy of gathering together around a meal. Andreas, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast. Um... I want to let everybody know that your book Dinner in Rome is out of this publication date um, and November 1st. And people can watch your TV show, New Scandinavian Cooking on PBS. Andreas, thank you for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me.
That was my conversation with Andreas Weistad about his book, Duner in Rome, and more. I had a really great time talking to Andreas, and I want to mention that his book is available now for purchase online through distributors or at All Better Bookstores. I'm going to put a link to it in the bio. Please join me next week when we're going to talk with Emmanuel LaRoche with his book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Tart Today's Food Culture. It was a great conversation, and I really love the book, and I want to promote it because it's really just phenomenal and very unique. Um, nothing else is like it, so you're going to want to pay attention to this conversation I'm going to have with Emmanuel next week. Until then, I hope that you have a really good week, and you keep on cooking. the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. (laughs) 